Hey everyone, I'm Jerome Goodrich, and you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by Eighthlight. Today we're continuing our series on all things data by talking with Eighthlight principal crafters, Miles McGezzi and Pierce Edmiston about machine learning. Along with AI, it's an area of tech that gets a lot of attention and is often spoken about as some mysterious black box that can solve all the problems. I wanted to open up that black box and break apart some of the misconceptions by talking with people who are actually using machine learning within real-world production-level applications. We get into the science behind the hype and mystery, the value of having data scientists and engineers working together on ML implementations, and how all the usual rules and best practices for writing good code still apply. Without further ado, let's go talk to Miles and Pierce. Miles, Pierce, thanks for joining me today. Um, to get things started, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and maybe even a little bit about the work that you've been doing? I can jump in. Uh, I'm Miles. Uh, I've been a principal crafter here at Aethlight, uh, and I've been working at Aethlight for about 11 years. And I've worked on a wide range of projects whilst at Aethlight, uh, but a couple of those projects have been very data intensive. And uh, specifically over the past few years, I've been working on one project in particular that has been very data intensive and would love to share a bit about that. Yeah, for me, so my background, I actually came to Aethlight from academia. So I had a PhD in cognitive psychology from University of Wisconsin-Madison. And like many of my peers when I was in graduate school, I was sort of forced to learn programming and best programming principles on my own. Um, a lot of times in graduate school, you don't get that sort of direct guidance and you're forced to to pick it up on your own. And And I was just constantly frustrated by how little attention was paid to code quality in academia. You know, there was basically no automated testing of any kind. It was, if it works on my machine, then it works for real. You know, the whole field of psychology when I was in graduate school was going through this, this crisis of reproducibility that people's findings were not able to be reproduced. So I became, you know, sort of deeply interested in making sure the code that I was writing worked, was testable, and, you know, really started to focus on that side of, of software engineering and became really interested in that, almost more interested in that than than my research. So uh, I came to Aethlight to basically round out that part of my software engineering expertise and, and really wanted to help traditional data scientists, you know, with an academic background, be able to deliver something more like a production application that we're used to seeing at Aethlight. So I think both of you mentioned having a lot of experience with projects being data intensive and dealing with high volumes of data. Where does machine learning fit into that? And why, why are we seeing these two things being talked about together? Sure. Yeah, I would say machine learning is one sort of natural use case of data in that, you know, the more data you put in front of a machine learning algorithm, the more that it's going to be able to learn. So they tend to go hand in hand where in order to have any sort of sufficiently intelligent algorithm, you're going to need lots of data to feed into it and and have lots of variability and other characteristics like that as well. Yeah, I would just add that I think... Um there's a lot of problems that can be solved. If you have data, there's a lot that can be solved with 
basic statistics, you know, in the linear model, you know, fitting a line to a series of points and sort of getting the slope of that line and, you know, being able to predict points on that line, you can get pretty far with that. But I think machine learning, the way it's talked about today, usually is involving more complicated relationships than than you can fit with the line. And that tends to come when you have large data sets, because although we want all of our data sets to be sort of normally distributed, we often run into real use cases with very long tails. They're very asymmetric data sets. You know, the majority of cases fall into one bin and a very small percentage fall into another bin. Traditional statistics might have a harder time answering that question than machine learning. And so I think when we talk about machine learning being more and more requested, it's kind of just an acknowledgement that real world problems aren't exactly the the ones that statisticians have traditionally solved, at least in their sort of pure sense. So I think it does seem to be that we're trying to build things that more match real world data or data that comes from our applications as opposed to, you know, proving something in principle. The real world, as we all know, is is messy. It's complicated. You're not going to have all of these things fit into these normal distributions. And so you need new tools, machine learning to help analyze and, and derive insights about the data that you're capturing. There's a tendency to treat machine learning as this sort of rarefied, special, almost arcane sort of technology. And I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to the, the mystique that surrounds machine learning, and whether it's warranted and the implications of that in the work that you see clients doing or in your own work day to day. Yeah, I think often when we hear clients talk about machine learning, they are intuiting some sort of black box solution that you know has inputs and outputs, and really we're not going to learn too much about what's happening on the inside, just that we get this sort of output that is automation, which is definitely something we care about a lot as software engineers, you know, automating things is a lot of what we do. So certainly understand that intention to to automate. Um, but there is a general idea that with a, a data set on a data scientist's computer, they would be able to, you know, develop this model in a vacuum that does that black box operation and is sort of ready to go. You can just sort of plug it in. You've developed this thing. We don't know how it works, but it but it works. And now we're going to plug it into our production system. But really that, you know, Miles and I have experienced this firsthand that that, that sort of operating model just doesn't really work very well with the way we like to deliver software. That it sort of smells like a waterfall process where you're developing something based on what you expect it to output and you sort of go away and work on it for a while and develop that prototype and then um, you can just plug it back in when really we think we should probably approach it in a more holistic way and incorporating it with the product from the start as opposed to developing it in a vacuum. Is this this sort of Rube Goldberg type approach that we had covered in a, a previous conversation? Yeah. So a Rube Goldberg machine is a chain reaction type machine that performs a simple task in an indirect and, and overly complicated way. <laughs> so I was thinking about this idea of, um, you know, a code smell in a data engineering project, kind of looking like a Rube Goldberg machine. 
Um, so I looked up Rube Goldberg and, and who this guy was. So, you know, this is early 20th century and he was a cartoonist. So, you know, he didn't build any of these machines. He just drew cartoons of these sort of elaborate machines. And even during his lifetime, he kind of became known for drawing these cartoons. And there were then spawned up these real life Rube Goldberg machine competitions. So I think even Purdue University has a annual uh, Rube Goldberg machine competition where you have to perform some mundane task with like greater than 20, but less than 100 steps is <laughs> uh, like how they sort of articulate the problem. But this is kind of something that we see a lot when we sort of see ETLs in data engineering, where the general approach is to add steps that sort of do future or, or further transformations. And, and it's kind of this append only process where you end up with this highly brittle system where maybe each individual step works, but you, you actually can't do that full end-to-end -end testing of what you're doing because you've got all these intermediate steps and each one works in isolation, but the whole Rube Goldberg machine is, is incredibly brittle. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the thing is that one step fails by, you know, as little as a millimeter and the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And so in machine learning, that often looks like really slow feedback on whether your data pipeline works or not. Like maybe you have to wait a day or more to find out if something that you did worked just because of the, the nature of, of the way these are, are typically developed. An example of this I see in Python code is when pandas gets included. So pandas <laughs> is this Python package for uh, data manipulation. Mm -hmm. Preach. Preach. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's basically, uh, you know, a spreadsheet manipulation tool in Python and I find that, you know, when Pandas gets included in an ETL, it's often one of these Rube Goldberg type effects where it adds complexity to what you're doing in a way that isn't really beneficial to the system as a whole. Um, so that's that's kind of one thing that I focus on is trying to eliminate those Rube Goldberg effects in the middle of a pipeline, you know, leave something like Pandas to be a, a BI tool, essentially. I mean, it's great for exploring data, but it, it shouldn't make its way into your production grade ETL. So yeah, the idea of, of a Rube Goldberg machine is really just, this is something that we as software engineers should be asking ourselves when we're designing data intensive systems is, are we building a Rube Goldberg machine? Are, are we adding unnecessary complexity to this pipeline? And are we just making the system more brittle overall? I mean, I, th I feel like you might get pushback that some of that complexity is just warranted uh, based off of the, the type of model that you're building the data that you're ingesting, you know, it needs to be a Rube Goldberg machine in some way. Uh, how do you feel about that? And what's the alternative? How do we get away from that line of thinking? I would say that a lot of times when you encounter maybe an issue in a data engineering pipeline or you notice something maybe at the output side, there might be an easy change that can be made at that level of the pipeline. Sort of, oh, this data type was incorrect, so I can I can cast it to the correct data type right here, super easy. I sort of know that that part of my machine works. But at A-Flight, because we really focus on full stack development, we can be more disciplined about how to actually implement that change. Because if the root cause of that problem can be addressed earlier on, move that change deeper into the system, 
so that you don't have to do that casting at the at the very end of your pipeline. That's one way to sort of avoid adding yet another step that can go wrong. Just being more comfortable with full stack development can can help that. So Miles, you don't have a background in machine learning. Um, I'm really interested to hear about what your perspective on the data engineering that goes around a machine learning project, what that looks like, how do you accommodate for new technologies and you avoid this sort of Rube Goldberg type machine uh, that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, you're right. I don't have um, a background in machine learning or really too much experience in ML. Um, Certainly don't have an academic background, but I certainly relate to a lot of what Pierce was talking about um, and his experience in academia surrounding repeatability Mm -hmm. problems or, or just quality control problems. It sounds very familiar to me. In, in my career before coming to Flight, you know, I worked on all these software projects that felt like a house of cards. You know, they're just going to come tumbling down at any time. And you have mm-hmm. to mediate that you have, a, a you know, a whole army of QA testers testing things. So in a lot of ways, I, I draw a lot of parallels to just normal software engineering. So when I've joined these data intensive projects, I've, I've approached it from the perspective of solving the problem in the same way that I solved those problems. 10 years ago coming to AFI where, you know, these huge systems, they have no testing, they have no CI pipelines, the code's not in source control, et cetera, et cetera. It almost feels identical. So, you know, coming into these sort of data engineering projects and kind of encountering the same things, my solution was always just to follow the same practices that I've learned uh, around just general software engineering that have made the systems I've built more testable, more repeatable you know, of a general quote unquote higher quality, or at the very least more predictable. Um, so if you could just take these practices and apply them to the data engineering field, it, it almost feels the same. So, you know, you put all your code and source control, you don't do anything on your local box. You do everything in a repeatable environment. You write tests, you have code reviews, you have CI. I mean, these sort of very simple things just applied to a different practice or a different part of the field that haven't been applied before, I think have yielded great results in the projects that we worked on together. So what I'm hearing is that there's nothing special about ML, at least in in terms of building something of quality that's maintainable, that is observable, easy to test, all of those things. There's There's nothing really about ingesting large data sets and deriving insights from those data sets that as generalist developers, we ought to find uncomfortable or, or, or different about that? I would say um, it would be useful to distinguish in machine learning the idea of doing some sort of predictive process or automation process as being separate from something that is geared toward generating insight because I don't really think about machine learning as as being something that generates insight necessarily. Mm-hmm. So to Miles's point, we were able to integrate an ML product into a human-in-the-loop workflow where it was pretty clear what the machine learning was supposed to do. Essentially, it was supposed to pre-populate a text box that could be filled by a human, but we wanted to sort of automate that. Now, how it does that might very well be magic. (laughs) But the idea was that the impact of that on the software was in proportion to the size of that feature. 
And what I mean by that is it's generally some version of like a, a Pareto principle where, you know, in data science, you hear 80% of the work is data engineering and, and 20% of it is actual sort of pure data science where you are pulling on algorithms that have been proven out in scientific papers, et cetera. And I think Miles is very effective at working in the data science space, even though he doesn't call himself a data scientist, because he approaches that ML in the same way you would approach any other sort of external dependency or something out of your control in software, where you write the tests around the parts you can control and you focus on that 80% of the, the pipeline that doesn't require any of that algorithmic knowledge. And you then isolate the 20% of the machine learning product to where it needs to be. And so then the majority of your work doesn't touch that directly, uh, but you can still deliver it in the same manner. So I've heard this story before, and I think it's fascinating and a really good kind of case study in how to build something that works regardless of the, the domain while keeping a product focus. Miles, I'm wondering if you can tell the story of how you and Pierce came together and started working on this document AI project. Yeah, no problem. Um, in 2020, a client that I was working on and am working on now, we came across a use case uh, wherein we currently have a product which fetches external data from one of a handful of data providers in the industry. And we use that to populate our system. And we, we came across a use case where we were kind of banging our heads against the wall about how to get a particular piece of data. You know, it just wasn't available for any of the data providers. It has this sort of canonical location on a document. You know, there, ha there has to be a data provider out there that has sort of built a process around this, scraping this data and, and what have it accessible for a price. But unfortunately, it just doesn't exist. So we tried many different solutions, but eventually we reached the conclusion that the only way we were actually going to be able to provide this data or access this data was to build a workflow ourselves to, to collect this information off of documents. So as daunting as that seemed at the time, we decided that we were going to try to build that workflow out, find a way to access the documents, get them digitized, get them ingested into our system, build a UI wherein users could extract that information. And then very naturally on top of that, we now have a process where our ML is able to pull the exact pieces of information that we want off of that document for us. And users can approve it, edit it if it's wrong, et cetera. But in the, at the beginning of this project, we didn't know whether this ML thing was going to work. We didn't really want to spend a year in R&D building something out and then have nothing. So we kind of took an approach where we wanted to, to be able to have something at the end of this that worked, regardless of whether the ML was successful or not. That was where we, we kind of took the approach. We're going to build out the, the workflow product first, and then the ML is just going to be this, this slight optimization on top. So at the very worst, the client would still have a product where they could get the information or have a workflow to get the information off of these documents in a repeatable, consistent way that could scale to thousands of documents and still be successful. Thankfully that it did work out. But at the beginning, obviously I've said before, I don't have any experience in ML, but it almost seemed like a natural use case. So after I kind of discussed it with our client about what our potential options were, I knew that 
I wasn't going to be able to deliver on that ML piece. It probably would take me a long time, but I knew that Pierce would have uh, quite a bit of experience. So I did bring him in very early on as a sort of assistance to that 20% piece that would be out of my reach. Little did Miles know I had absolutely zero experience with the machine learning platform that we ended up using. But uh, <laughs> like you said, we sort of designed for the fail case. And ultimately, you know, we approached the problem as if we were using any other framework or third-party tool that as software engineers, we have to learn about on the fly all the time. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the job is to do this sort of just-in-time learning for the things that you need. So certainly there was some background knowledge I had about, you know, natural language processing models and the sort of problems they're good at and bad at solving and certainly had enough understanding to put together a proposal when we sort of kick this project off. But Miles is very much right that the way we approached this was the client came to us wanting full automation. We said, that's pretty far off. Let's find the MVP that we can deliver here, which is have a human do the thing that the machine is supposed to do, which is, you know, pull these bits of data from the document, build out that entire workflow basically as soon as possible. And the reason that was so valuable is that it meant that every document we were getting as a order of normal business was one more document in our training set for the model that was to come. And so I think it really was an investment in data quality at the start of this project that guaranteed its success long term. And, you know, we, we did things in the project that A-Flights should embrace, which is focusing on delivering that MVP product when it comes to ML, which means, you know, in our case, it was what's the baseline model? Um, you know, 90 some percent of the document is irrelevant. So a baseline model is just going to say, you know, nothing in this document is interesting. And you can actually trace that through the full system. You can have, you know, a model that is a baseline model. It's not good in any way, but it still forces you to think about how it's going to actually integrate with the human workflow from the start. Another thing that we've done is, you know, we have a uh, confidence that comes back from a model that when we do automation, we sort of set a threshold on that confidence. Well, the first time we build out threshold, we set it at a value that's never going to be returned by the model. We set a threshold of minus one. And we know that we can prove out how that should work with a threshold that will never be riskier. How do I want to say that, Miles? You know, there's like, there's kind of a way we've, we built out like the simplest possible thing, you know? I think you're, you're basically just taking the TDD approach to product development, where you, you write the simplest case first, then a slightly more complicated case. It allows you to sort of build out the architecture of the system at a macro scale in this case. But nonetheless, the same principles have been used, right? Like we build out the system to account for a threshold and just set it at an unreasonably high value that the model can never exceed. So we knew that it would never, the automation would never trigger. But nonetheless, the model was returning a confidence, our threshold, it was being compared against our unreasonably high threshold. And we were able to get the whole system architected around that before we ever turned on a threshold. And it did force some design decisions. I mean, we had the icons figured out. Before the model was really going to return this high confidence thing, we kind of had the, the user interface wired up to know what it was going to look like. So then ultimately, when we were confident enough with the model to turn it on, it was basically a non-event from a user's perspective. It was exactly the same workflow that they were used to seeing, except that we had a pre-populated text box with what the model's best guess of what they were supposed to pull from. 
And so I think that that was very satisfying to go through that launch and have it be such a typical deploy. It was not a ceremonial thing when we eventually turned it on. And I think that is a good thing. Did you encounter any resistance in trying to sell this approach? We certainly encountered resistance of the idea of developing it incrementally. I think the client wasn't initially on board with the idea of like developing the whole workflow product first. I think that they wanted to just kind of jump in and like prove out that the model would work. But I think that the thing that allowed us to convince them was the idea that the workflow product itself was almost necessary in order for us to get high quality label data to train a model on at all. Um, so it almost was a product that fed itself. I guess taking, you know, what you've learned from from this project and and others like it, do you have any suggestions for companies that are facing data engineering or ML questions, best practices that you've encountered or, or gotchas that you ran into? I would say it's worth having a good understanding up front of the, the general category of machine learning problem you might be dealing with. There's a pretty big gap between supervised and unsupervised learning problems. Supervised learning, just generally referring to the fact that there is some ground truth answer. There is some person who could say this is what the model should return in this particular case versus an unsupervised problem, which maybe is a little bit more on the, we want to cluster our data. We don't know how many clusters there are going to be. We just know we have different types of consumers in our, in our data set, and we kind of want to figure out what those are. So unsupervised problems are harder because it's not as clear what the, what the real answer should be. It's, it's not as clear if the model was right or not. Um, so if you are in the supervised learning camp, you can get really far with the basic software engineering practices that, that we kind of know about in terms of just data processing and understanding that way. For the unsupervised stuff, is that like a, a legitimate caveat to, you know, working in, in the non-radical way of just adhering to best practices for software engineering? Is there anything about an unsupervised learning challenge that poses some problems there? You probably want to think about model validation in a different way. So you should pay a lot of attention up front to some idea of kind of what, what you expect to happen. These models, what makes them different from typical software that we write is that they, they do have this probabilistic element to them. And you have to build in reproducibility um, in a way. So yeah, when it comes to an unsupervised problem, you kind of need to know how you're going to know that the model is successful or not, because without that sort of label to base a lot of metrics on and things like that, you might need to do more data visualization on the output side. You might need to think about a curated data set in some way that can help you validate a new model. But we're still talking about reproducibility. We're still talking about testing and validation. Those things don't change. They, maybe there's just a greater emphasis on them. You know, the way Miles and I approached this document AI model was really to make sure we understood the fail case really well. You know, what happens when the model doesn't return anything? What happens when it returns something bad? What happens when it is overly confident? How do we correct that? And so, yeah, if you're approaching an unsupervised learning problem, I would really make sure that that fail case isn't negatively impactful or that you sort of accommodated well for the model not working, focus there, and then add on when it starts to work. That sort of 
covers maybe your advice for companies. What about for other engineers that are taking on these problems? Are there any sorts of best practices around the structure of data or how it's propagated through a system? Anything that you learned that you think would be particularly helpful or relevant to an ML problem, whether it be unsupervised or supervised? Miles had mentioned this earlier, but I, I would say that you know, people working in this space, data engineering, data science, you know, y- your laptop should never be a critical part of any of that pipeline. It, it happens very frequently where we get in the habit of you know doing transforms or even model training on our local machine, but really you, you need to design this stuff in a way that your laptop is not part of that loop. You know, these days it means using a cloud provider for infrastructure related to machine learning and you kind of need to build that out from the start because there's just it's just bound to cause problems if you can't account for that happy path automation route from the beginning. The other thing I would say is that given the maturity of some of the machine learning tools that are out there being open source, I do think that software engineers should become more comfortable approaching these machine learning frameworks in the same way that they would approach uh, learning a new web framework or a new programming language. There's vibrant communities out there. There's good documentation and you can learn it just like you learn anything else. When I talk to other athletes who might be interested in learning something like TensorFlow, there's kind of maybe a, a gut check. They're like, oh, I don't do that. I don't know what's going on there. And yet they will, you know, pull some web framework they've never used before and get ramped up on it in a day. So I do think that we we should be more comfortable pulling in these tools and shouldn't be necessarily afraid of them for any any reason. Anything you want to add there, Miles? I certainly agree. I think there's a, there's a huge potential for, for as Pierce said, using these tools. Um, there's probably something pre-trained and built out there that you can use for your situation. I mean, we took the approach of building a a highly bespoke model, which can be difficult. You have to maintain it and you have to grow it and mature it as your data set grows, et cetera. But you know, there are solutions to use pre-trained models and there's thousands out there and they are well-trained on huge data sets and they have communities around them and they're maintained just like web frameworks are. So, you know, bespoke models don't have to be the solution. It can be, there might be an answer for you in, in some sort of pre-trained thing. And I had an example that we were discussing the other day about just an address validator where this was something I was working on on our web front end, and I happened upon a pre-trained model that does address validation on United States addresses. So I pulled it in and we're using it today, and it's way better than regexes. You know, that's just a small example of, of how you can integrate these tools in a, in a lighter weight way without going the sort of full-blown bespoke model that we've done. Is there anything else through this conversation that y'all want to talk about or that came up that you feel like is relevant, any details or specifics, even just like high level pontificating is is also fine. (laughs) Yeah. It's worth pointing out that Miles and I have had a healthy argument about this topic over the years, really whether data engineering does comprise a unique skill set. And Miles definitely represents the camp that you should be able to do data engineering just like you do anything else. And I largely agree with that. You know, I think we can talk about where there are some differences. And, and yeah, sometimes it has to deal with the scale of the data you're dealing with. I mean, if your data is so big that you need a really big machine to do it and you need a lot of time to do it, that's just inherently a slower feedback cycle, but it's not a 
different feedback cycle. And so there might be, you know, more emphasis on maybe some of the compute requirements or optimization might might become more critical or, you know, heavy data projects, but that doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily a different beast. And so there, I think we're pretty much in agreement on. Yeah, certainly. I don't want to make it sound like it's just as easy as everything else. You, you should go do it. It has its subtleties in the same way that, you know, a front-end developer might be able to explain to you what this means in JavaScript. Whereas, you know, I might be able to more clearly explain why a streaming ETL might be better than a batch ETL. I don't know. There's there's nuances and there's expertise that can help you along the way, but the practices don't change. The principles that we hold dear do not change. You know, the same rigor that we apply to developing websites, to developing APIs, to developing anything applies equally to ML and data engineering. I think I agree with both of you about that. I think that once you're able to actually get in a system and start instituting these best practices, you've already cleared the largest hurdle. And so I think I'm more curious about how to get that buy-in, how to distance yourself from these misconceptions about ML, and if there's any strategies that a team could take that's looking to work in this tried and true way, but is encountering resistance around, no, we need to make sure that the model works beforehand, or we need to train it with X amount of data before we can validate this use case or whatever. Is there kind of like a foot in the door sort of thing that you feel is particularly effective, especially as data becomes more and more important and ML becomes more and more important so we don't end up in the same place that academia might be right now? Yeah, I think it draws a lot of parallels to how you get buy-in for for instituting test-driven development at your organization. That's not used currently, right? It's It's a matter of trying to develop a process that's iterative. If you can sell your project manager on, we're going to make this small investment and we're going to, over time, start to see small results from it and then grow it and grow it and grow it, that's much easier of a a sell. Um, As opposed to, I need a year to go do R&D on this model and then I might come back with something. Obviously, those are just two different levels of buy-in. So if you can like design some process or workflow or any sort of iterative plan, you know, you're just going to have a better time. Miles Pierce, thank you both so much for joining me and for this delightful conversation. I think my interest is, has definitely been been piqued. The next time I have to do some sort of address validation, I will definitely look for some sort of pre-trained model. But I think even more broadly, thank you for sort of demystifying and in some ways de-risking the exploration of ML for an engineer like me who's never really uh, had the opportunity to work with it and has maybe been a little bit scared. So with that, again, thank you both. And hopefully we can do this again someday. Thank you. Yeah, great chat, Jerome. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. I want to thank my guests, Miles and Pierce, for sharing their experience of working with machine learning and advice for how to apply the skills you have to whatever new technology is leading the latest headlines. 
We'll continue exploring different data-related themes in future episodes, so stay tuned to hear firsthand examples of how small, interdisciplinary teams across development and design work together to deliver robust solutions to complex problems. Are there things that you're seeing in your organizations that we didn't cover in this episode? What are some of the ways that you're seeing craft evolve within your teams? Let us know by heading to aflight.com slash collaborative dash craft or tweet us at at collab craft show. Please like and follow Collaborative Craft on your preferred podcast app. And if you like a particular episode, share your comments. We'd love to hear from you. And if you know anyone who's curious about the craft of software and the types of conversations we're having, please tell them about the show. The more people hear about the show, the more we can help others unlock their potential and build a better future together. Thanks again. Bye. This episode was produced by our friends at Dante32.